I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and it's good to be with you here this morning on this three-day weekend. Thank you for coming and uh, celebrating Valentine's Day and the President's Day. What a wonderful weekend, huh? Thank you. (laughs) Maybe it's not so great. I don't know. Listen, this morning, Romans chapter 7. The thing that I care about, uh, I think, the most, and I think that anybody who has a heart for the Lord's work is that we're established in a, in a world where we need to be growing in our faith. You're here uh, because you have chosen to be here, I hope, and because there is a certain underlying desire that you need the Lord, you need what God has, you need the Word, you need community. There needs to be a growth to our faith. My guess is, however, and uh, if I were to ask, and we're not going to ask this and ask you to respond, but if I were to ask the question, are you currently living what you would consider to be a victorious Christian life, where you have conquered every sin that comes your way and every temptation you're able to withstand, you're able to overcome it, you're right and above it, and you're able to put to death those sinful desires, and you're able to live fully the victorious Christian life in every moment and every day as a brand new start, and you can't can't be more excited about what God's going to bring your way because you're going to conquer anything that comes your way and you're living the victorious Christian life. If I were to ask a show of hands, and I won't unless you really want to, uh, I suspect that uh, not a lot of us would be raising our hands. And we think, well, you know, it seems sort of negative, sort of critical, maybe even judgmental. It comes across that way from somebody like myself. But I just know that the reality is that a lot of us simply aren't living it the way we think we should be. Um read about a guy by the name of Larry. Larry is a typical kind of a guy. Growing up, got involved in alcohol, drugs, sexual immorality. Finally, he began to turn his life around and got himself involved in a, uh, uh, as a counselor, a, a, an addiction counselor, 12-step counselor, to can help other guys get out of what he has been through. Sort of imprisoned him. Finally came to the point where we went to a Billy Graham crusade and and as they were singing that great, great hymn, Just As I Am, that's when he made the decision that he would come to Christ for his salvation. So he committed his life to Jesus Christ. And then after he committed his life to Christ, he realized, I'm not living what I would consider to be a victorious Christian life. Because then he began to drift back into alcohol. He began to drift back into the sexual immorality involving himself with numerous women. And finally, he just realized he's in a bad place. And so he told a friend this. This is the way he put it. As he told his friend, I'm not living, as he called it, the victorious Christian life. I'm not going to church. I don't really have a desire for spiritual things. He says, my life is stuck somewhere between just as I am and just as God wants me to be. And I suspect that there are more and more people living in the world today, maybe some of us, that we feel like we're stuck somewhere between just as I am and God loves me just as I am, faults and flaws and sins and all. To be sure, that's true. But then isn't there a point where we begin to move beyond that? Where the sins that have been preoccupying me and sort of tripping me up in that spiritual journey become a little less and the victory over them, the success, the spiritual passion, the hunger and the desire for righteousness become stronger every day. So that each day as I move along, I'm no longer stuck between just as I am and just as God, what God wants me to be. I'm saying I'm more what God wants me today than I was 10 years ago. I want us as a church family 
to be those people that are moving further and further as just as God wants me to be and less and less as, frankly, just as I am. That's what you're stuck with. I don't want us to be stuck there. Romans 7 is such a critical chapter in the book of Romans as we move from sin and salvation and now we're going to move into that holiness and service for Jesus Christ. Romans 7 is sort of that hinge that moves us from just sort of knowing about saving work of Jesus and now we want to get into the spirit-empowered work of being set free. But 7 is sort of that hinge chapter that admits the struggle of the past but wants to move me forward to the future. So we're not stuck anymore. So I've titled it The War Within Us. The end of Romans 7, I encourage you to have your Bibles in hand. There's an outline that's in today's bulletin as well. I think you will find these two tools, the Scripture as well as an outline, very helpful in this journey together. But the Apostle Paul tells us, tells you and me, he says this in verse 23. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Here's the Apostle Paul, the most mature and godly man that we can look back upon from the early first century church. He, along with Peter and these other great saints that we look to and have written, the Holy Spirit has inspired them to give us the text. He says, I'm looking at my body, I'm looking at my flesh, and it's waging war against my mind. My flesh wants to do one thing, but my mind tells me, don't do it, but it still does it. My body, my flesh, this battle, this struggle to conquer those things that keep weighing me down. He says, so I'm waging this war, so I call it the war within us. And then he says this in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Wretched man that I am. The Apostle Paul, this guy that's supposedly the guy that told us in Philippians 4, everything you see and learned and watched in me, you do it, he says to the Philippians. This is the man that says, wretched man that I am? Wow, where, where is that conquered, victorious, so-called Christian living, where I'm never again entrapped in all these sins that keep pulling me back. Well, this is the wretchedness that we want to talk about. The word wretched means miserable, to be afflicted. And candidly, there are times when I should feel wretched. I should feel wretched when this body of flesh causes me to do something that this righteousness of my mindful thoughts should prevent. There should be a wretchedness. There's a danger when you no longer feel wretched when you ought to be. And the beauty of being wretched is this. Feeling wretched, miserable, causes me to ask the question, who will set me free? And I hope that if you're here today and you're kind of caught up in some stuff that you know, man, you shouldn't be doing it, but you're here and we say, praise God, and there's things that are holding you back and tripping you up and, and you're not living this life that's supposedly be so, so great. Man, where is that life? I hope that if in that, maybe that state of wretchedness, you're asking the good question. So who will set me free? That's what Paul does. And so we want to journey with that. Here are some of the things that causes that wretchedness. He says in verses 1 through 4, let me read the text. Or do you not know, brethren, that I am speaking to those who know the law? that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. 
For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So he's saying, here is the law. Let me illustrate the law. The law is that once you're married to a man, you cannot divorce that man. But he says so in verse 3, So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she's called an adulterer. So the law says, you divorce your husband and he's still living, and you marry someone else. The law says, you're an adulterer. You're a sinning. You can't do that. And then he goes on and says, But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, although she is joined to another man. And so he is illustrating the fact that the law has jurisdiction. Married people can't divorce and marry someone else without becoming an adulteress. But if your husband dies, you're free from the law. So the law frees you up to go do what you want to do in terms of marrying someone else. So verse 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another to him, to Jesus, who was raised from the dead, he in order that we might bear the fruit for God. The law holds me back. The law restricts, the law guides, the law burdens. And the more the Apostle Paul tried to obtain the righteousness of the law, the more wretched he became. Self-effort to gain God's righteousness makes us feel wretched. And they come out of these three things. Sinful passions, verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, this physical body, my flesh causes me to want to do sinful things. He goes on and says, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. He is saying there's something that happens in the law that arouses sinful passions. Just kind of an illustration of that uh, on Friday, on Valentine's Day. Joy and I were thinking, you know, what do we want to do for Valentine's Day? And so uh, I'm not the... You know, I hate to say this, but I'm not the most romantic guy. And so, yeah, I bear that weakness not proudly. And so she said, well, let's go down to the beach, the beachcomber. You know the beachcomber, the little restaurant down there off of Highway 1, and you have to park on the other side of the street and pay 15 bucks to go to the restaurant? You know that place? And so that's where we went. We walked down there, and, uh, of course, Valentine's Day, President's Day weekend, wouldn't you know it? two-and-a-half-hour wait to eat there. It may be good, but it's not that good. And so we climbed up the steps and went to the Shake Shack. Love little Shake Shack thing, Ruby Shake Shack. And so we would go over to the Shake Shack, and, of course, there's a line. And uh, I hate to wait. I hate to wait in lines. And so there's this woman and a bunch of kids, and it was, like, taking forever. And so as she was leaning in to pay the guy, you know, on the inside, it's like, going to a bank teller or something. So she's leaning in. She leans up against this white um, little shelf. And then she looks down and she's got black pants on. I said, oh man, I got paint all over my pants. So I looked at the shelf and lo and behold, it says, wet paint, don't touch. I thought, on Valentine's Day, you painted it? I mean, aren't you expecting somebody to show up here? You know. Anyways, uh, and so lo and behold, she's got paint on there. And so here is how the law arouses sinful passions. When I saw it, wet paint don't touch, you know what I did? I touched it. There was, there was a magnetic impulse. Is, is it really wet? Is it, you know, 
And so we have this impulse that the, something, ha- I don't understand it, but Paul talks about n- several times how the law, you know, it's sort of like when I'm, uh, yesterday I was riding my motorcycle out to Santiago Canyon Road, and, and just before you get to the tollways there, they've put up these new signs. And these new signs are such that they're not on all the time, but if you go fast enough, the sign lights up and says, you sin or you're speeding, it, or something to that effect. But it lights up 55 miles per hour, you're going too fast, curve. It lights up. So every time I go by that sign, there's something carnal in my heart. I want to go as fast as I can to see if I can trigger that sign to light up. It's just crazy. And you, if you go about somewhere between 67, 68 miles per hour, you can light up that sign. Just, it's just a little extra you didn't pay anything for. But there's something about a law that says... Maybe I can get around it. Maybe I can outdo it. And more seriously, I have met with couples who have told me that sex was a lot more exciting before they were married than after they're married. Show of hands? I feel very uncomfortable with you today, I'm sorry. (laughs) But I'm telling you, that kind of honesty is what Paul is talking about here. That there are certain things that you think you can get away with outside the law because it's tantalizing. And that's sinful passions. Sinful passions. Sinful passions are past memories of those things that I used to do And you know what the evil one does? He brings those memories back to our mind. And, oh, I don't want to think about what I did when I was so many years ago. But they come back. Sinful passions, they remain in this brain. And something, a song, a movie, a statement, they'll trigger it. And, oh, wretched man that I am, that I thought back to that. Sinful passions of past memories and sinful passions of present activities that make a desire to move into a realm. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this? I don't want to live this way. Also, there are sinful deceptions. Notice down in verse 11. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandments, deceived me and through it killed me. The word opportunity is a military term that means to set up a station from which I will launch an assault. Sin has set up a station in which it will launch an assault to destroy me because sin deceives me. Sin deceives Paul. Sin deceives us. And one of the big sin's deceptions is the fact that if I work hard and I earn my way to heaven, I will gain God's righteousness. That's the world's biggest lie. 2 Corinthians 11.3 talks about this deception, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Sin deceives. Satan deceives. He caused me to think things that aren't true. Uh, George Orwell has written a book called 1984. Some of you don't know that. It was big back when, when I was younger, which was a while ago. In George Orwell's book, he's got this term called black-white. Black-white 
is a term that he phrased, that where the government suddenly determines that black is no longer black, but now black is going to become white. And when the government, Big Brother, when Big Brother says we're redefining the terms, we're redefining the terms, and when the populace of the party, the populace of the party say, okay, if black is no longer white and white is now black and black is now white, okay. Deception, where we begin to redefine the terms, and I'll illustrate that in a moment. And Satan's biggest lie is this. I can earn my way to heaven. That's sin and Satan's biggest lie. But God sends me to hell. Every single other religion outside of our faith in Jesus Christ teaches this lie. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, you name it. Every other religion, including so-called Christian faiths like Jehovah Witnesses, they have as their premise this lie that I can earn my way to heaven by being self-righteous enough that God will accept me. So I do these things to gain the righteousness of God. But God's going to send me to hell if I don't shape up. That's a lie from the pit where Satan dwells. Here's Jesus' truth, the counterpart. God sends me to heaven. I can't send myself to heaven. There's nothing I can do to get to heaven. God's got to do it all for me. He does everything for me. Jesus calls me. He saves me. He redeems me. He gives me sanctification. He makes me holy. The Spirit fills me and dwells me and empowers me. And then when the day I die, I go to heaven. God does it all. Whereas the uh, counterpart of that is that I earn hell if I reject Jesus. Because Jesus is the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but through Jesus. That's Satan's lie compared to Jesus' truth. And so what happens is that a sinful denom- domination begins to occur. Notice in verse um, 13. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. The law is not bad. The law, as he says in verse 12, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. The law is good, but I can't achieve the law in my own strength. I can't do that. I can't get there from here. So he says, may it never be that I would ever cause, call the law bad. It's sin. Rather, it's sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. The law is good, but the sin causes death so that the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. Sin would become utterly sinful. Sin would become exceedingly sinful. Sin just, just takes over. It becomes the awfulness of all awfulnesses, as if there is such a thing. Here's an example of when sin dominates. Revelation is written to the church of Laodicea. Because you say, I am rich and have nothing, and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable. This church, these people, these believers, these followers of Jesus had reached the point of sin domination where they have a self-sufficiency and I have need of nothing. I don't need anybody. I don't need the church. I don't need the scriptures. I need nothing. I am self-sufficient in who I am. And so that is the way the world many times lives. You share Christ with them? No, nah, I don't need that stuff. You ever read the word? No, nah, I don't read. You know, I, I'm okay. I don't need any of that stuff. I don't need. I don't need what we here believe and teach. They just don't need it. You ask anybody you work with, go to school with this week, you know, do you, you ever feel the need for Jesus? Oh, I'm sure he's a good guy, but no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. The guys that I sometimes uh, ride bikes with out cycling, I, there's like three people that I kind of connect with. I've talked to them like that. Ah, don't need it. I'm good. See, it's sin's den- domination. 
And what happens is that you do not know that you are wretched. The Apostle Paul says, wretched man that I am, who can set me free? That wretchedness is an indication that the Spirit of God is causing me to ask the right questions so that I can come back to Him. That's what He wants. Now let me illustrate it. Jesus is the master illustrator. Jesus would illustrate with um, a fig tree. Jesus would illustrate with vineyards and and wine. And Jesus would illustrate with uh, the wheat of the field or white into harvest. So let me try to impersonate Jesus just a hair by using my front yard to make a point that begins to lay the groundwork for all that we want to say. This is a portion of my front yard. It is, uh, if you can't tell from the screen, it is a bunch of that little clover stuff. You know that little clover stuff? It looks like a four-leaf clover, but it's not. It's a weed. And if you let it go, a little yellow flower pops up out of that. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You see those things? Yes? Some? All right. Okay. And so I try my best to have a nice yard. I'd like to have a nice yard. I have a terrible front yard because this clover keeps on coming back. It just begins to spread. It literally strangles out the Bermuda. And Bermuda is supposed to be a very hardy grass. And it's so frustrating for me. And so I have three alternatives to get rid of this weed of clover-like white yellow flower stuff. Here's option number one. I could determine that, you know, that is no longer a weed. I have now determined that that is a good thing. And I'm going to do all that I can to water it and feed it and let it just spread and take over my entire yard. And it will, because it's halfway there all right already. And so I can just reclassify it. And I think to myself, well, who classifies things that grow so well into weeds? Is there some United Nations committee that has determined, yeah, these are, these are weeds, and so you, they are bad, but here is grass, and this is good. Why don't we just, just, if we all just did nothing with our yards, they'd all turn into weeds. So why don't we just reclassify weeds to something good, something beautiful, something desirable? That is one way to overcome the law of the flesh. And that's what spiritually some are doing today. They're taking what is, used to be classified as sin, weeds, and now they're reclassifying it into something good, desirable, acceptable. And now if you come out and admit, I am a weed, there will be people that will call you courageous. Because, wow, what a strong character to admit that he's got what used to be sin but is now no longer sin. We have redefined marriage, we're redefining other behaviors, and we're simply reclassifying them. And so that's one thing I could do. I could take my front yard and just turn it into a big weed fest and let all my neighbors gripe and complain and say, hey, so who says that they should be bad? Who says weeds should be bad? I don't want to do that. I'm going to keep it as a classified weed. Secondly, I could do this. Here's another portion of my yard. When Orchard was going out of business over here, I went over there, and because they had a big sale on, I bought a whole bunch of weed and feed. So I took that weed and feed and started throwing out my front yard, and I thought, if a little is good, a whole lot is better. 
And so I started throwing that out there on that clover because I'm not going to surrender to this infestation of destruction in my front yard. And so I threw that out there. And you know what happens when you put weed and feed on it? The grass dies, but the weed says, bring it on, buddy. And it, got, and it continued to grow. And what little thorns or weeds died, there's a whole bunch of new stuff that grew all around it and even got stronger. It's crazy. And so weed and feed, you know, it maybe has its place somewhere, but you see those little dead, dried-up patches of grass? It's so frustrating spiritually. There's some people that take the law of the flesh the law of living by the rules and regulations of God. And they're sort of weed and feed people. And through human effort, I'm going to annihilate all that sin. And you know what we call them? Legalists. Judgmentalists. And so I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of all that sin. And, and so we've got in the church rules and regulations that tells that these are wrong, these are wrong, these are wrong. And through sort of a legalistic, judgmental way, we're going to root out all these nasty sinners that keep on showing up so that we can have a very nice, lush growth that looks good. We want to look good. And so there are some today, and I grew up, I grew up in a community of wonderful believers, but the mindset was legalistic. And all the simple things like dancing and drinking and card playing, unless it was rook, all those things. Oh boy, you know, don't, you know, a woman just told me, uh, as I was, anyways, I don't know whether I should say this or not. You can email me and tell me if I shouldn't say this, but. Um, <laughs> She said, yeah, when I was a kid, they banned dancing too because they said, in dancing, you're doing vertically what you want to do horizontally. That was the... See, that's, that's a, and so there is this mindset that if I just judge and condemn and legalize, I can cause all those terrible sinners to straighten up. And it didn't work for me. You know what happens with legalism? You get dead spots. You begin to deaden the heart of those that otherwise would grow. You begin to have a scorched earth where there's a deadness and a dryness to the soul because the soul does not thrive under judgmental legalistic attitudes. It squelches that spirit. And so you know what I did in the backyard? Here's my backyard. I began, I got a shovel and I began to dig it all out. I said, you, you no longer are going to live here. And so I put new soil in little spots where I found those weeds. I put new fertilizer. I put new seed, and, and it hasn't grown yet. And so I threw that seed out just about a week ago. And so what happens is that you come to the point where you realize, I cannot physically mandate or manipulate this soil to cause it to be what it should be. And spiritually speaking, I cannot mandate, I cannot humanly manipulate my body of flesh to become conformed to the righteousness of God. I can't legalistically, I can't judgmentally, I can't just reclassify and say it's no longer sin so I'm freed up. I can't do those things to be set free from these things. What I need is a completely transformed heart where old is dug out and new has begun to grow. 
where the person of Christ begins to be, give to me a new heart, a new life. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. My sin is put on Jesus on the cross. His righteousness is placed into my heart so that I am fulfilled in my righteousness through Jesus alone, not through my human manipulation, not through my weed and feed of legalism and judgmentalism, and not by reclassifying sin that is always going to be sin and just calling it non-sin and desirable. I can't do it that way. And so I threw that seat out there, and it was interesting. Just this morning, I was looking out the kitchen window as I was fixing coffee, and I saw all these little sparrows picking the seeds out of my little freshly planted grass. This week, I'm going to buy a 12-gauge shotgun, (laughs) and I'll show those little birds who's in boss around here. Just kidding. But isn't that what Jesus said? Remember Jesus? When he said, the seed cast along the side of the road, it falls in the rocky soil. The birds will come and pick it out. And you know what you and I, we have to do? If we want to overcome this thing and be set free, we need to take those seeds of Christ, His righteousness, put it in the soil of a new heart, water it with a washing of the water of the Word, Wash it, as Titus 3 says, with a regeneration washing of the Spirit so those seeds begin to take root and they begin to grow and the strength of the root overcomes those birds, those influences that would steal away that brand new faith. That's what God wants us to do. He doesn't want us stuck somewhere between just as I am and just as God wants me to be. God wants to set us free. And here's what He offers to us. As Romans 8 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. Paul says, Who will set me free? He comes along then in Romans 8, then a few verses later, Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. How does He do that? He does it in these four areas. First of all, it starts by believing in Jesus, letting Christ be my life, letting Christ energize me to give me brand new birth, to take away the old corrupted heart and replace it with His heart, His life, His righteousness. So the seeds of the Spirit of God begin to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what he says in Romans 7, 4. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him, to Jesus, who raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. God says, I want to join you to Jesus. I don't want to join you to the law. The law is going to condemn you. The law is going to make you feel wretched. Let's come to Jesus and let Jesus begin to transform us so that we might bear his fruit. Not my fruit, his fruit. It's similar to what Jesus said in John 15. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. This this relationship that begins to form. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. How do I bear fruit? How to become a productive Christian? How do I bear the fruit of God of righteousness? I abide in Jesus. Remember, Verse 4, the last line, in order that we might bear fruit for God, how do we bear fruit? Abide in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. This is this, this abiding. Romans 6, 6 says, knowing, gnosko. Gnosko is the Greek word that means a relationship of knowledge. Before you get married, you have a, an oida, an intellectual knowledge of your spouse. 
But after you marry, you have a gnosko, a relationship with your spouse. Before you get married, you think you know things, but after you get married, you really find out the real person because you start living together. And there's things you like, and there's things that are going to bother you. And that's where mature marriages work them out. So, gnosko, relate to Jesus. That our old self was crucified with Jesus. I relate to him, or that a body of sin might be done away with. So it would no longer be slaves to sin. It's a relationship with Jesus. Let me illustrate it this way. These couples were part of a study. And the study was this. Aren't they a happy-looking couple there? 50 years of marriage. Don't you really want to get to 50? That's how you look. 25 couples who were married for over 25 years, they did a survey of them compared to couples that were married for maybe 10 years or less. And the survey was to ask them to put together the pictures of those couples that were married together, these individuals that were married together, and those that were um, not. And it was interesting because every couple over 25, who had been married over 25 years, they could say, I think they're married. I think they're married. I think they're married. And why? Because when you're married for over 25 years, you begin to look like your spouse. It's kind of a scary thing to think about. But that's what they were discovering. This is just a, and science wouldn't lie to us. So it's scientific. And so you know it's true. And so they have this study. And here's like two of these couples. And yeah, they look like each other. And in the one case, it's good. And in the other case, it's like, wow, what happened? You know? <laughs> And I think to myself, if my relationship with Jesus is similar, and it is, the more I spend time abiding in Jesus, the more I'm going to look like Him. The more I study how Jesus talked to the woman at the well, the more I'm going to treat sinners like He did. The more I see how Jesus interacted with the leper the more I'm going to have compassion on those who are hurting. The more I spend time with Jesus and how He interacted with His disciples who betrayed Him, the more I'm going to become forgiving like Jesus. And the more I see how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees who judged Him, the more I'm going to have the fiber of faith to not give in when society wants to push back on righteousness that's true. The more I abide and spend time, again, alone, alone with Jesus, the more I begin to think like Him, act like Him, have an attitude like His. The more you spend time relating to someone, the more you look like them. And it can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing, depending upon who you're hanging out with. But if Jesus is the source, abide in Him. So He can set you free to serve in this new power, not a legalistic law. We don't want people serving. We don't want people working hard because the law says, I've got to do it. We want people who want to do it. And the Spirit gets hold of me, this new spirit, this new power in verse 6. But now we've been released from the law. I've been released from the burden of the, of the wretchedness of what the law makes me feel so that I can be set free from that law. So we serve in a newness of the Spirit. 
<coughs> not in the oldness of the letter. Well, the Spirit takes hold of my life and it begins to transform me. So there's a hunger and a desire to treat my spouse, to treat my friends, to treat my boss, to treat those who treat me poorly. There's a desire to serve in this power of the Spirit, to fulfill the law. Not because I have to, but I love doing it. Because that Spirit is controlling me now. Because I have this relationship with Jesus. And the Spirit begins to challenge me and control me. Here's an illustration. Martin Lloyd, Lloyd, Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones has written about it this way. Before we come to Christ, we're in this field where Satan runs things. First John tells us, this whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Don't ever kid yourself. Satan is in charge of this world. So there's so much terrible things going on. Whole world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, John says. And so before Christ, I'm living in his world. And look at that world. I chose this picture that doesn't look bad. It looks desirable. It's green. It's lush. It's probably no little clover weeds. It's a beautiful place. Why wouldn't I want to just live here? And Satan says, I love it. I love it when you love what I love. Because you don't know how bad you have it. But then you come to Christ. When you come to Christ, you go into the field where Jesus is in charge. His jurisdiction. I begin to grow my knowledge of Him. But what happens for some believers is over time, as I'm hanging out with Jesus in His field, I begin to look back in the old fields. Man, you know, that's some stuff there is not all that bad. Like Larry, stuck between just as I am and just as God wants me to be, because Larry kept going back to the old way. And God says, I've set you free from that. You keep looking back there. Yeah, there's going to be temptations. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be obstacles. But set your mind, Colossians 3, set your mind on things above where Christ is. Set your mind on Him. And let Him be that driving force so the wretchedness goes away. Because in Christ, Christ, I'm fulfilling the righteousness of God. And what a freeing place that can be. And then we honestly admit that we've got struggles. It's not always easy. Paul the Apostle battles this, and some people think it's before he became a believer. Some think it's after he's a believer. Either way, here's what he said. For we know that the law was spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. I don't understand why am I doing these things I shouldn't do. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. What's wrong with me? But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's why some people, it's got to be before Christ. That is in my flesh, but the willingness present in me. But does a non-believer have a willingness to be righteous? But the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but the practice, the very evil that I do not want. But I'm doing the very thing I do not want if I am the longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Here's that summary. It's a struggle. And what I appreciate about the Apostle Paul is he didn't hold back. There's a lot of us, we don't want to admit our struggles. We don't want to be honest. Here's, here's man, I'm... I'm blowing it here, I'm blowing it there. I got a guy that I used to know up in Lodi, and he'd come to me and he says, Man, I'm a liar. I keep lying. I don't want to lie. Why do I keep lying? He lied about things I didn't want to even have to lie about. He didn't lie to gain ahead, he just lies. Why do I have this driving, sinful passion for that? I don't want to do that. I appreciated his honesty to, 
to begin to work on those areas of refinement where Christ has more victory. We have Celebrate Recovery. We have life groups. We have a discipleship ministry. We have counseling ministry. These are places where you and I can go, people we can trust, where we can say, I'm struggling. I want to overcome this. But I am I'm right there with Paul. Man, I'm just not getting over it. I'm not getting over that hump of those sinful passions, those sinful deceptions, that sinful domination. I'm just not moving into the righteousness of Jesus like I'd like to. We would love to support you and help you move to say with Christ, thank you for setting me free. That's why we do these things, so we can have that kind of victory. And then finally, sets us free to know God's truth to guide me. Paul the Apostle says, the law is good, it's holy. I should involve myself and I should understand it. He says in summary in verse 22, For I am joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I concur with what God says. I need the Word. I need to bathe my mind in the Word. I need the Word to continue to teach me, but not to make me feel wretched that I'm always, I'm never good enough, but to bring me to the point where I say, I've been released from what the law is demanding of me because Jesus has fulfilled that law in me. This flesh, yeah, it's going to drive me. It's going to cause me to want to do things. But I know that in Christ I will begin to have that victory so that it, like Larry, no longer between just as I am and just as God wants me to be, every day becomes more of just what God wants me to be. And God wants us to be brought to that point. And if you're not there, we would love to pray with you and support you in that. It can be such an awful place for people who are stuck and their spiritual growth is simply not bearing fruit for God. We want to help. Come alongside. Let the Spirit of God do for you what we can't do. We can't do it. We won't use weed and feed on you. No scorched earth here. Legalism, judgmentalism. We're not going to change the rules. We're not going to say, oh, it's no longer a weed. Now it's good. But we can bring you to the one that can take that soil and recreate it in something new and good where bearing fruit becomes natural. And we'd love to pray with you and support you in that. We're going to worship. We're going to take the elements, the bread and the cup. It symbolizes the body and the blood of Jesus. And come before those tables. And if there's anything you need to confess, would you confess it first? Say, God, I, yeah, I, that flesh has been, it's, it's been dominating me and I, I, I want to confess that to you right now. Confess that first. Come up here and worship and say, God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus' body, his blood symbolizing these elements. That I want to abide in Jesus so I bear fruit for Jesus. The offerings are there to give. And we have people over here who would love to pray with you as well. And just encourage you in that journey. So let me pray. And we'll worship together. Father, thank you that you have a hunger and desire for each of us that we would be those like the Apostle Paul where in Christ Jesus we have been set free. I pray, Lord, that you would set us free through abiding in you, renew of your spirit to serve you, being willing to be honest that, yeah, I'm struggling here. 
And there will be no recrimination, no judgmentalism, no legalism cast on anybody who does that. But that we come alongside and say, yeah, been there. Let's go there together. Let's get beyond it. Let me help. God, may we be those people where the law, the word, is that spiritual hungering food that quenches anything that would be of the flesh. Strengthen us now as we worship and honor you and glorify you and celebrate your body, your blood on the cross and give thanks and praise as we offer to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.